Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a great writer. He's a novelist. He's also a nonfiction writer. Uh, he also uh, teaches writing at NYU. His new book, The Queen of Tuesday, is just getting uh, incredible reviews. It's a, it is a very special book, and uh, I am thrilled to have uh, Darren Strauss, someone I've, I've read for a long time. And uh, although I'm not sure we ever met in person, we're something like friends from the internet. Darren is friends with my sister, Jennifer. Uh, we grew up uh, two minutes from one another. We went to the same college a few years apart. And um, Darren, it's a pleasure to have you here, man. Oh, thank you for having me. Huge, huge fan. Congratulations on the success of the book. It must be um, it must be rewarding when you try something so ambitious and people seem to understand what you were after. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's a, it's a relief. You, you know how it is. I mean, I was just telling my kids this. I have identical twin boys who are 12. And it's so scary putting stuff in the world. It's so easy not to do it, but you have to just risk falling on your face, you know? I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm getting good reviews, but I kind of feel like that's just a crapshoot, right? Yeah, but better when it... I mean, yes, and you can't internalize it for sure, I, I, but uh, it does make the path a little easier in a way and maybe makes you feel a little less crazy, no? Oh, it's hugely uh, easier. There's no question, but I just feel it's lucky, you know? I mean, and we could definitely talk about this. You know, you've you've put a bunch of work out there. This is like my sixth thing I put out there, sixth book. And uh, I don't think any of them is better or worse than the others, but some just get lucky, you know? But I shouldn't, I shouldn't shit all over it. I'm very happy that it's getting very good reviews. So yes, it's, it's a huge, huge relief. No, it's, it's, um, it's worth staying with what you just said, because if we, if we, um, if we take it away from just critical response to work, like the professional critics response, I think your attitude is healthy, but hard to get, uh, hard to sort of own because so many of us, are so frightened of the way work will be received that we can't produce work. Unlike you, I think some of the work I've done is better than, I think I'm maybe more hit and miss. So I, there are things that critics haven't liked where I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I mean, I, it didn't make any sense to me when some critics didn't like rounders and it still doesn't, but there are some things that um, critics didn't like that I understand why they, why they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't like them. Uh, uh, but but I'm attuned to it. Are you able to not be attuned to it? And are you able to get it out of your head completely when you're working? Ooh, good question. I mean, I'm definitely attuned to it much more than I want to be. I'm trying to get to the place where I'm just happy with the work and I just want to, I, you just want it to do well enough so you can keep doing the work. But it's easy to say that now because, you know, I've been getting good reviews for this book. If I If I had gotten shitty reviews, I think I'd be in a different headspace right now. But but I, that's where I want to get, and I'm trying to get there. Um, but I think I'm pretty good at putting it out of my head while I'm working. It's right as it comes out. I'm a basket case. When you're working, is, is your process to rewrite as you go? Do you just try to blast it out uh, when you're actually creating pages? Like... Uh, you know, for so many people, and it used to be this way for me, the inner critic makes the actual writing in the beginning a, a very halting process. Yeah. Uh, and so how does that manifest for you or not manifest? Or how do you deal with it? Or how have you gotten past it? Well, I mean, this book took me a long time. And I think that's probably why. So my last book um, 
was a memoir and it won a big award. And, you know, usually you feel like that's freeing, but I think for me, it was, it made it like there was more writing on this book. So um, it took me a long time to be able to, to find the voice for the book. Um, but my, my uh, method for writing is not to do a quick blast. I think that's probably better. I just can't do it. I'm, I can't go forward if I don't think everything I have is as good as it can be. So I'll, I don't even know when people say, how many drafts do you have? I don't even know the answer to that because I'll write a chapter 20 times before I write the second chapter. So, but you know, I have friends who are writers who just do a super quick first draft, which is shitty, but then they have something to work with. And I think that's probably a better process. I just can't, I can't get there. I mean, what do you, what is your process in terms of drafting? Well, yeah, I'll get to mine, uh, but I'm going to stay with yours for a second because, uh, because I I understand both sides. I've done both things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you say you're working on that first chapter, I completely relate to that. If I don't have the first scene of something right, I can't I can't keep going. I have to have the opening right, um, or it may change later, but it has to feel right for for now for me to move forward, and I will go back, but. How, uh, when you're writing like the first chapter or something this ambitious, where you understand what you, what you're doing, are you each day, are you reading what you wrote in the morning? Are you reading in the morning up to where you are every day? Uh, how does that work? I think in the beginning it works that way, but you know, this book is 300 pages, so you can't do that. I work at NYU with Jonathan Saffron Foer and he says, I kind of find it hard to believe but he says that he will start every writing morning by just reading everything up until the point he is, the point in the story where he finds himself that morning. So like if he's on page 200, he'll read 200 pages before he starts writing. I, I couldn't do that, but I definitely do that in the beginning. Cause I think you're right. That first, that first scene is so important because you have to sort of convince yourself that it's real or you're not, you're not going to be able to believe it yourself. So I think the, yeah. So for me, the first chapter definitely takes longer than any anything else always if you leave the desk and and you don't like what you've written that day does it ruin your day or are you able to cast it aside and know tomorrow you'll solve it no it ruins my day and i definitely have a lot of a lot of days where i leave the writing desk with a black eye or you know a limp um yes so yeah it's a weird career you know (laughs) you're sitting there making stuff up and if it doesn't go well you're in a bad mood and people just have no idea why you're in a bad mood or what you're doing so yeah it's 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 strange yeah people don't understand how much i think that people who want to write and don't and get discouraged they get discouraged because of that feeling of failure but i often think they don't understand we fail just as much just as often but somehow we're able to fool ourselves into getting back the next day and try, right? Do you, I don't think people understand how much of a writer's life is just failure, like where you just feel completely not up to the task to which you've assigned yourself. Yeah, I think that's, and it's failure. That's a great point. And it's failure in every aspect. It's like, <laughs> it's like failure. Yeah. It's like, it's like failure at the desk. So you'll, you'll be like, I'm going to have a good day today. And then you sit there doing nothing. And then you'll write something really shitty and you'll erase it. And that'll be your day. And, or it's yep. failure on a more macro level. Like when I won that award, I mentioned that same day I was rejected. The Guggenheim? You're talking about the Guggenheim? No, no. I won the national book uh, 
uh, Critics Circle right. Award for my last book. And the day, I think it was the day I was nominated for that, I got a story rejected from the New Yorker. And it's like, you know, it's like never, it never stops, right? Or like you get a really good review in the Times and you feel good and then you get a bad review in the Boston Globe or something, whatever it is. But like failure is a constant. You have to be able to deal with it. And, it's, and, it, and I think it's true at every level. Like I have friends who are friends with Philip Roth and I, I think he viewed it as a big failure that he never won the Nobel Prize. This is like a guy who won the Pulitzer Prize multiple times, National Book Award bestsellers but still felt like okay i've got this failure and i read yeah. i read same thing with um saul bellow he was in his letters he was complaining to his friend that it took him winning the nobel prize until he got in the new yorker so these are guys with grudges who you know when you're growing up but you look at them as like mount rushmore and in their head they're like oh my career sucks it's but that's a sort of an external kind of failure. And I agree. We all as professionals get used to that. For me, those failures, while they suck and they hurt and I hate them too, <laughs> the worst the worst one for me is if I can't even gin it up to feel like the work I've done on a day is is useful when I've tried, that's the, for me, that's the one that's the worst. Yeah. Because, and, and so, because so much of how we define ourselves is by our ability to create something on a page. And when that doesn't happen, it does lead to a real sort of like, well, wait, then what am I exactly? Yeah, it's a total crisis of confidence. And it does happen all the time. And I think you're right. There's something about people who can do it that is as important uh, as talent. It's the it's just the taking it on the chin, you know? Because, yeah, because, yeah you'll, you'll write something. And what's also weird is how changeable it is. Like I've had days where I was like, I've, fucking nailed it and i had a great day and then the next day i'll look at it and i was like what was i thinking this is terrible do you have that too yeah it takes like 24 hours i'm i'm because of the tv schedule stuff i'm much better at i don't have any emotional reaction to that once the first 24 hours i think wow everything it's great if i cared about it that day you know I, i'm very excited but i'm I, I'm somebody who loves being able to go back and re rewriting for me is like the greatest joy of like rewriting my own. I mean, I, that's the part, please. Once I've just written something that then at least I can, I know how to make it good from there. Yeah. I'm with the, you. The, so I don't care that much if it, I don't, I, I, the, the disappointment is in the day. So on the day that I'm disappointed, that sucks. But then if I've written a few pages and I can come back the next day, I'll find something in it. That's the, um, something in it that is like the rope that if I'll grab on and follow that rope, I'll climb somewhere, you know, that, that will allow me to inside the thing to, to go spelunking and to <laughs> find out how to make it work, you know, to find something of value in it. The hard part is when I don't have an idea, right. Or when I'm there and I'm, I'm feeling like nothing I think of is worth keeping on the page that drives me fucking crazy. But then you know, you find, a, I mean, the people who can do this professionally or, or do it are the people who just, trick themselves into being able to keep going. I think that's what's so valuable about morning pages. Yeah. I don't know if you, you do them, but that is why morning pages changed me because no matter what I've written three pages or today, I, no matter what else happens today, I've already written three pages, you know, uh, but, that's, but that's such a key point. And that I think is why we can take the failure because we've done it enough where we know this feels like a failure right now, but I'm going to find something in there that I'll use. So, you know what I mean? So like you, yeah. you, you've had enough bad days that have turned into usable days that you know like, yeah, the failure is provisional in a way. But I, I think that like the, the guys, like you, what you're saying, the guys who are able to 
revised, those are the people who make it. So I remember when I was in grad school, I te- like you said, I teach at NYU and I was a student there in the 90s. And um, the, the most talented guy in the program was not the guy who made it. But the story with him was he could never turn his really good first draft into a great second draft. So I remember once we were studying with um, this writer, Peter Carey, who's a very good novelist. And so Peter's teaching this class and this guy, and we're, we're reviewing this guy's work and we're saying, it's good here. You maybe change this and change that. And in the middle of the workshop, he slams the desk. And he's like, fuck you guys. And he stands up and he goes, I showed this to eight of my friends and they all think it's great. So fuck you. I'm out of here. And he left and we're like, what the hell was that? And I think that those kind of people can, you know, are, are never going to make it no matter how talented because he just couldn't, he couldn't take the pretty good and make it very good. And my first drafts were worse than his, but I was able to be like, okay, what do people have to say about it? How can I make it better? So I, yeah, I mean, I remember talking to the writer, Jonathan Lethem, and he was saying talent is nothing. It's just, it's just sitting in the chair and doing the work. So I'm, I'm somewhere between, right. Uh, in terms of what I believe, uh, So I love the guy who says fuck you to everybody in the writing program. That guy's my hero. Um, But that guy, you have to really be that good, right? Bob Dylan told everyone to fuck themselves, but he was Bob Dylan. Yeah. And, And so, you know, Haruki Murakami was sitting in a baseball game and he got an idea for a novel and he wrote it in his basement and sent it off and never thought about it until a year later when it won the, like, you know, if you're a genius, you can do that. And, and people miss geniuses all the time, right? Geniuses are always ignored, you know, and, and I, and I watched it with Amy. Amy got tortured in her writing program at Columbia and she was the first one to publish. They didn't understand what she was doing. It hurt her feelings. And she was just like, well, I have to tell my stories. So I do think, I, 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 I mean, I, I think there are, uh, I, I think that there, that there is value in deciding I'm not going to listen to what my peers have to say, but then you have to be rigorous enough uh, with yourself to hold yourself to account. Yeah, yeah. I, or you have to know which of these peers is a fucking idiot and which is, which is the guy who can tell me what, you know, because, yeah, it, you can't... Yeah. The problem with notes, you know, in screenwriting uh, and also in a workshop in fiction is like... The idea that art is going to be focus grouped is a is a mistake. Like you, you give anything to fifteen yes. people, they're going to normalize it, and so it's the same as everybody else's. So that's a really good point, man. You know, um, and and um, my daughter took a writing class with you and just said you were amazing in the writing class, and and you ran it perfectly. She loved the way the feedback was given and stuff. So I I know that you're actually aware of all that stuff. She's a great writer. Know. She's she's going to be something else, I think. Yes, I agree with you. She's really good, and she works her ass off, and she's good at taking criticism and making it better um no thank you for saying yes she loved the class but um i i have sorry i when you told that philip roth thing um, i know you've seen my philip roth story on uh uh i'm sure you know my crazy philip roth story i won't tell it now but i have a great one and if you don't i'll tell it when we're off but there's a part two to my philip roth story which is he was he was obviously amazing i lived in the same building as him for a little while he would fuck with me sometimes and it's, it's great but then years later and sometimes he would he would he was very very friendly to amy at times and um and he was very nice to her the she wrote him and he was nice to her but once i was walking down new york street it was years later 
And Roth was walking up the street. I recognized him. And of course, he's the great, you know, you can make the argument he was the greatest living writer. And I don't know what got into me, but I put on a super New York accent. And I did not know this about the Nobel, what you said. I put on a super New York accent. And from and I looked, I was in like a ripped sweatshirt. And I just looked like a New York City, just like, just scummy guy. And I just shouted like at 30 feet, I go, hey, Phil, they should give you the fucking Nobel. <laughs> <laughs> And he shouted back, you go tell him. And it, <laughs> That's great. It was. It was just the best thing ever. So, all right, here, here's, here's something I want to ask you. Uh, how, um, you know, in this time of, both in this time of pandemic and in this time of um, the novel, as an art form, um, being somewhat usurped. I, these are the questions I have. And it's a bunch of stuff, so you're going to talk for a little while. But these are the questions. How does a novelist live right now? Like, what do your days look like? What's your morning routine? I want, like, all the granular stuff of a day in the life of someone whose job it is to think and write during a moment where these things, like thinking and writing, are really hard to do. Maybe the hardest they've ever been to do. Wow. Okay. That's a good question. I mean... Yeah, I had a new book idea, um, and I haven't been able to do it because, well, partially because of what you're saying about the novel and the pandemic. So there's the pandemic, how it and and how it affects us just being at home with everybody, and then there's how the pandemic affects marketing a book. So my thing was, okay, I was supposed to go on a book tour. You know, they were, the publisher was behind the book, and it was nice. They're going to fly me to L.A. because the book takes place in L.A. largely. And Long Island. So I was going to do stuff in New York, stuff in LA, stuff on the West Coast, and then the Midwest. So it was, it was going to be nice. And then they said, yeah, we're not flying you anywhere because no one's flying. And, you know, so I thought, okay, how am I going to market this book now? And so many books are pushed to August. So my book is always supposed to be August 18th. But then the pandemic happened and a bunch of books in May and June, they pushed back. So there's a glut of books. There's no tour. So I thought, okay, I can write. So that's I'm going to try to make my own destiny here. So I just pitched a bunch of stories about Lucille Ball because you know we haven't right. even talked about what the, what the book's about, but the book's about Lucille Ball in large part. So I wrote an article for the Times about well, I, Lucille yeah. Ball. I wrote an article for Vanity Fair about Lucille Ball. I wrote something for Paris Review. I was just like, okay, I'm going to make this book seem ubiquitous. And so, so the book has been everywhere. But it's because I sort of forced myself to do that. So, so instead of writing fiction, I've been writing all these nonfiction pieces about Lucille Ball. Yeah, I had a question for you about that, but I'll just ask it now, and then we'll get back to this question I asked you about the writing. So I noticed that you'd written all those pieces. You sent them all to me this morning, but I'd read a bunch of them already. And, and, um, and I wondered how you felt about like having to shoulder the burden in the way that you did. I can't picture Salinger doing that. You know, I can't. Hemingway did it with his lifestyle, but like... <laughs> I, I mean, how did it feel to have to fucking do that now? Um, like, I love the industriousness of it, but I did think, like, writer as salesman for his own work feels unfortunate in a way that it, it feels burdensome to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I try not to think of it as salesman for my own work. I thought, you know, I'm a storyteller, and these are great stories, and so I'm going to do that. But I guess, you know, you feel a little bit like a piker doing this, but I just, you know, I've talked to everybody uh, everyone I've talked to who's a writer in this period has said, yeah, you just have to be industrious, as you said. So um, I'm trying not to 
<laughs> not to beat myself up, you know, and, and the, the, the thing is the publisher has been behind it. They made a great ad for it. They, they have uh, gotten it out there. So it's, it's not like I'm complaining about them. I just think this is an unfortunate moment and, you know, people have really suffered. So, I, you know, you sound like an asshole and you probably would be an asshole if you're like, okay, yeah, all these people have suffered and, and I've suffered because I've had to write an article for Vanity Fair. Like it's, it's, there's a different layer of, there's a different level of. No, no, of course. Uh, uh, yes, of course. That's not real suffering. Just having the opportunity to have a book come out and be able to write about it. But it's like contextualizing your, I guess, you know, so yeah, the, the book is about both your grand, I mean, the book is a meta narrative and I, I have some questions about that that we'll get to, but you know, you having to contextualize your own novel for people seemed hard. That's all. As I was yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. it, I was like, that seems like a hard thing to have to do because you, in a way you've written, you wrote the book a while ago. You want to be able to sort of like talk about your book on promote it in that way, but then to have to keep sort of living inside, it seemed hard. So, okay. So that distracted you from living like a novelist, but what do your days look like when you're doing what you do? You know, do you have a morning routine? Do you, you know, as I said, like, what's the granular day in the life of how you, how you think and write? Yeah. So normally, I, as you say, I teach at NYU. So I've got my office in Manhattan. I live in Brooklyn. So, and I hate exercise, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there middle-aged wise. So I thought, okay, I need to exercise. So I'm going to bike to Manhattan and that'll be my exercise. So I'd bike to my office and I would write at work. So I, I have this office on 10th street. So I would just bike there and, and that was great. But now, you know, the office is closed. My kids are home. They were, they needed, they needed homeschooling in a way in the, in the spring. So I, uh, I, my wife and I would teach them a little bit. So yeah, it, it's been, it's been screwy. Um, but generally, so, so my life now is my routine is whatever the day allows me, huh. you know, yeah. like my kids are great, but they're, you know, 12 year old twin boys and my wife's in the house. Um, do you get on the bike in the morning, Darren? Still? I, I haven't. So I guess what I've been, so what I've been doing, I bought a heavy bag and I've been, yeah. I've been, um, I've been just punching it, which has been great because it's like a great stress reliever. And it's, and for, my kids have made fun, fun of me. So at first I did it to the Rocky soundtrack as a gag, but then I yeah. found it so energizing that every morning I put on, I put on going to fly now and, that, and to that, to that great soundtrack, I just, beat up on the heavy bag and that's been what, good what are you stress. what are you doing to protect your wrists man <laughs> i just i bought uh, i bought gloves with really good wrist protection do you do you All use right. the heavy bag you asked that no so. but dave you know my creative partner david levine uh -huh. he's been boxing he, his grandfather fought joe lewis for the heavyweight title dave's been boxing his whole life no way so like a time yeah so like i've just picked up and I'm a boxing, a real boxing fan, so I've just picked up stuff. I've hit a heavy bag, but I don't do that because largely of the wrist thing. Like, I just don't want to fuck up my wrist. I ride, but I ride, one, the thing that's kept me sane during this time is I ride, I ride about 20 miles a day. No way. Maybe, yeah, like today, 17 and a half, I think I did this morning. Amy and I did 17 and a half. Like, I just get up and go. And where that's do you like go? The, like, I'm outside of this. I'm about three hours outside of the city right now, so... I just go and I just ride. Like I, I have a, you know, um, a, a couple of different routes that I can take. And, and so I, you know, I go and I do an hour and a half basically. And I just go and try to get 20 miles. That's great. I and should it, do that. Well, it just makes the rest of the day so much better. Yeah. That's how I feel about the boxing. And it's good because I mean, I really work up a sweat and then, but I also, you know, I think of things I'm angry about when I punch that bag, you know? Yes. 
Yes. When do you write? So then when do you write? So I have to write in the morning because as you said, those morning pages are important. So I feel like I'll write from nine to lunch and then, you know, I'll, I mean, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys who, who doesn't stop and take breaks. I need to take breaks. So if I say like I'll write four hours, I'm not going to be like nine to 12, never looking up. So I'll, I'll write from nine to 12, but I'll, you know, I'll check email every once in a while. I, I need to listen to music as I write. I mean, I do also, I listen to music when I write. Yep. So, so, you know, I'm often like finding a video on YouTube from some songs I like. Um, but yeah, so then I'll, I'll try to write nine to five. I mean, I was inspired by the, the story of John Cheever, how he would, he, I guess he lived in the high rise of Manhattan. He would put a suit on, go down to the coffee shop, drink with the commuters and then go back up and write. Huh, so yeah. He felt like he needed to feel like I'm going to work, you know? So I, I'd like to do nine to five. Um, and is most of that actually where you're drafting pages, like drafting pages of the project you're working on? Yes, definitely. Um, and uh, what, what about you? Do you, do you, I mean, you're, you're doing so many different things. So I imagine it's probably different when, when you're wearing your different hats. Yeah. I mean, the show takes over my life. So during that, I'm not writing that much other stuff. I mean, some, but I'm not right. You know, if I have to write an, I mean, then everything else is a break. So if I'm writing like a 2000 word essay for someone, dude, that's like the most fun, easy, what would normally drive me insane. You know what right, I mean? Right. But um, it's as a break from, from what I'm writing. That's just like, Oh, the dessert, you know, I get to just have fun. This is awesome. You know, but, um, but that's just how fucked up people like you and me are like for most of us, for most of the world, if someone said you have to write a 2000 word essay, people would be like, Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> you know, and we're like, Oh, that's candy. That's my dessert. That's yeah. That really is. That's like, this is amazing. What a joyous day. Uh, no, I write all, I mean, when I'm writing episodes of the show, yeah. I really end up writing a lot on the weekends because we have to produce the show during the week. And so I'm writing during the week, of course, in the morning and I'm writing in the car on the way to work and all that shit. But then my weekends, I'm sitting on my couch and, uh, just writing scenes. And then at lunch, I go to Red Farm across the street from my apartment and I get um, like a big pot of oolong tea <laughs> and uh, and like one dish. And I sit there and just write and drink my pot of tea, basically a lot of weekend days. And, but I can't, obviously none of that's going on now. I mean, none of that's going on now. Right. But, um, but yeah, the morning, I mean, I'm a, I am I do, I mean, my morning routine is like so very specific. I have to, um. I have to do like Julia Cameron's morning pages, like three stream of consciousness pages first thing in the morning to get myself going. And then I meditate. I do first I meditate. I do 20 minutes of meditation. Then I do morning pages. Then I do some kind of exercise. And then I like used to be walking, like you said, like wa long walk to work. And then I can write my pages. So the, those, those stream of consciousness pages, those are not screenplay pages. Those are just correct. Okay. Longhand. I do longhand, three longhand pages because no matter what, then I've done something. Yeah. I, I kind of marshal my energies though, because I feel like if I do three pages that are not going to be in the book, I don't know. I feel like I have a finite number of words a day I'm going to be fresh for. So that would freak me out a little you, bit. Well, you don't seem like someone who's ever been blocked. Like I was blocked till I was 30, but this isn't about me. It's about you. So, uh, so you sit there in your office. Are you not taking calls then? Are you not answering emails really, except during like, okay, I'm taking a break. So I'm going to go on Twitter. I'm taking a break. So I'm going to. Uh, do you, do you, do your, do your, does your family know not to text you unless it's important? Like, how do you, how do you protect that time? I'm not so good at that. And I feel like I need to be better at that, but I, I take too many breaks. I, uh, I'm distractible. Yeah. I, I, uh, my wife is, is a writer and she's really good at knowing not to 
bother me, but you know, I, I don't think anyone else really gets it. So, you know, there are times where my sister's like, can you come? I mean, this is going to be fake, but she's like, can you come, you know, pick up something and pick up my kids or whatever. And I'm sort of like, you know, I'm working and she's like, yeah, right. Okay. But seriously, can you come pick up my kid? Right. Right. I think people think books just appear, you know, I remember I was dating a woman in the nineties and I said something about it being hard work and she laughed and she was like, that's not hard work. As David Mamet says, the problem with working at home when you're a writer is that it looks an awful lot like just sitting around the house doing nothing. Right. And, and uh, no, and, and I'm looking in, as you know, like in my house, all four of us are writers. And so that's a big positive, except that um, my son is able to work. He can literally work in the middle of chaos. Like you could be throwing a ball, screaming. There could be music. It doesn't matter. He is able to produce pages no matter what is going on around him, which makes my need for giant headphones, music playing, nobody saying a fucking word, right. seem ridiculous and quaint and massively out of <laughs> out of time because his forces of discipline are just so insane. Um, my wife is like that. that. It, and the funny thing, you must have done something right. You Both of you guys must have done something right because I, like I said, I have these, two, my wife's a writer, I'm a writer, and kindergarten... When, when my kids were in elementary school, there was um, career day. And the teacher said, what do you want to... And they're in different classes. So the teacher said to each of them, what do you want to do when you grow up? And just coincidentally, both of them said, I don't know, but I know I don't want to be a writer. Hilarious. No, I think you're doing something right. I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, it, uh, we got luck. In our house, it's just luck that both of them love to do it. And they're both very good at it. Um, so... And what about the thinking time? Does the bike work work for that for you? The bike works great for for that for me. I I will put on music and then get lost in genuine lost in thought that absolutely pays dividends in the work. Yeah, um, for me it's weird. I'll I'll often dream stuff and wake up and have to run to write it because I know I'll forget it. But I I mean I dream like full movie scripts sometimes or full stories and then I just I lose them and I wake up so I have to like run and write them write them down but i think that- you should you i read in one of the pieces you wrote that the book or that someone wrote that part of this new book uh came from a dream you had yeah so so i woke up three in the morning wrote down this thing i said oh this is my next book and then i went back to sleep and i woke up and i had no idea what it was but i was excited because i thought i'll look and i'll see what my next book is i remember writing it down and it was <laughs> just the words lucille ball and i was like what the fuck is that why Lucille Ball? I didn't remember what the dream was. And uh, awesome. I, th- I think it was Lucille Ball and, and, and Papa Izzy, my grandfather. Right. I was like, what the fuck is that? But then I did some research and I found out that they actually had been at a party together, likely. Thrown- yeah, at Fred, at Fred Trump's party. Yeah, right? so I thought, holy shit, this, that's a weird coincidence. I, maybe someone told me that. And then I, re- and then I asked around and you know, people in my family had talked about it. So maybe, that, maybe it was something I'd overheard and forgotten. Uh, and then I just started doing research on her and I just said she was the coolest woman and I didn't know so much about her. I knew how popular she was, but I didn't know, um, how many, how much, uh, ground she broke. I mean, she was such a trailblazer in so many ways. And I just thought, oh, this is an awesome story. I do want to talk a little bit, you know, it's weird to me in a great way how I'm four years older than you, I think. Um, yeah, because I graduated college 88, you graduated 92. Yeah. 
but but we went we grew up in the same town neither of us went to the school everyone else went to and then um we both went to the same college yes weird and uh yeah and i think we've always felt some kind of kinship for each other somehow partially because of that whole sort of thing and then we both became writers but um i i, I was wondering if you could describe because a lot of the people on the podcast the writers had had lives that were very far from privileged and 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 yet growing up in Roslyn for, for for me an incredible privilege but i always felt like an outsider like i didn't identify that i'm a writer but i what i identified was i'm processing everything that's happening differently than the way all these other kids are processing it i don't know if that i certainly didn't think i was processing it in a better way i just thought i'm seeing things i'm seeing dynamics that they're not seeing i'm seeing these interactions in a way that they're not seeing them. Again, I didn't think I was right necessarily. I just knew I was apprehending a bunch of stuff going on. As a result, it made me distanced uh, or made me different, you know. Yeah. But uh, but I was wondering if you could describe describe uh, the way you grew up. What a typical because because like obviously your memoir talks about the fact that that you then had a you know, a very clear before and after tragedy that happened in your young life. I had one too, and that my dearest friend killed himself when I was 13. Um, uh, not the guy I told you about on Montrose Court, someone else, who that guy also, but, but um, yeah, weirdly. Um, but can you just describe what it was to grow up in, in Roslyn or Roslyn uh, ad- adjacent? And like, sort of before the big event happened in your life, like what a typical problem might be for someone there, you know, yeah. like uh, as opposed to the kind that most people have. Well, that's a great point and great question. I mean, I felt like an outsider in many ways. Uh, so I grew up in the around the corner from you, but I grew up on the wrong side of the street, basically. Uh, not on the wrong side, but just an interesting thing. So I... If I lived across the street, I would have gone to Roslyn High School, which was a very largely Jewish, non-Jewish. And so I would have been, you know, in the, in the majority. But I happened to go to North Shore High School, which is a public school that, uh, on whose border I was at the far edge of. And so I was one of two Jews in my elementary school class, uh, grade, rather. Um, and... Uh, my wife always makes fun of me about this. She's like, oh, yeah, you faced anti-Semitism in, the, in, in Roslyn, Long Island. That must have been so hard for you. But it was true. Like I, I, when, I was in, when I was in third grade, some kid said to me, you're a Jew? And I was like, yeah. And he said, um, where's your beard? And I didn't even know what he was talking about. I was like, I'm seven years old. But in his mind, Jews had long beards. And I was just so, – right. so, so there was that. And then it's interesting you talk about privilege because – yeah, I, I had a big house, and uh, and we had we we lived in a really nice neighborhood. But my dad had a very interesting career where he would lose and make money in huge swings. So there were times when, among my friends, I was the rich kid. But then there were times when, I mean, my dad my dad ended up losing his house to the bank um, when I was in college. But so right. when I was. Uh, so I guess so when I was in elementary school, like very young elementary school, I felt very secure. And then I didn't know what was happening, but my dad all of a sudden was super stressed and he lost everything and we almost lost the house then. And then he built it back up and did very well again. And then we had 
indoor pool put in and I, and we felt good. And then we had a, a live in maid and I, you know, my parents are huge spenders, even though they didn't have money. So we were, I grew up with a live in maid. And then I mean, all I of a think sudden, that was a, right. And that was a common thing in that town. I'm really trying to picture where your house was. So if I came out of Glenwood road and made a left and went toward this train station, yeah. how far, how far up Bryan Avenue were you on the left? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm not good with, with let's say, distances. let's say I'm driving say, I'm say like I'm, a, a, a minute before the train station. So yeah, you know, on the left, but before the, left. the before, before the road banks yes. kind of like, yes. so on the way to Glencove road before it banks. Yeah. I of. would say a quarter mile before it banks, something like that. Unbelievable. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, we really grew up one and a half minutes from each other. Yeah, like I would ride my 90, bike past your house all the time. Right, a ninety-second. I mean, it's a ninety-second bike ride. I mean, that's incredible. But um, so, you, did you think of yourself then like a writer? Did you know? Did a teacher say to you, "Hey, Darren, you're you're good at putting words together"? How did that come to be? Yeah, well, so I did. So, like you, I felt like an outsider, and I think it's because my dad lost money, and because I was a Jew. And it, it was, was he a property? Was he a property man? He, yeah, he was. He he was a real estate guy, uh, right. and and his father. I mean, I, I made this joke uh, recently. My my grandfather had the crazy skill of inheriting a bunch of sky rises in New York and still managing to lose money. It's like an impossible thing. Yeah, my grandfather it is did. impossible. So yes. he died penniless. Also, right? yeah. So my family is very bad at keeping money, but they they would have it at times. But anyway, so so yeah, I was told I was a good writer in elementary school, and then it didn't even occur to me to be a writer. But I would I tried to write a novel. Um, in fourth grade about Frankenstein. So I was obviously thinking of myself as a writer, but I had no role models because everyone my parents knew were business people. So it didn't even occur to me that someone could do this to make a living. It was only when I, well, you mentioned I had this crazy event. And so in 1988, when I was about to graduate high school, a girl swerved her bicycle in front of my car and I hit her and she died. And I, and it was sort of kept for me that she was committing suicide. So I, you know, I felt this incredible guilt and her parents sued me for millions of dollars that I didn't have at the time, obviously. So, um, yeah, so, so that, I think I was sort of like, you know, life is fucking crazy. I might as well try to be a writer. I don't know. It was something about that. I just was like, wow, there's no guarantees. So, and my parents were very discouraging at first. Now they would pretend, yeah, we were always so supportive, but wasn't for it wasn't Darren, quite that way most 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 people at that event happened and as you say you later learned she was trying to commit suicide but at the time you went i mean your memoir is incredible uh tell say the title of it i just oh thanks yes half a life thank you ha- uh, the memoir life. is in, it, it's truly an incredible book and um but in it you know you're so shaken up and 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 you replay the event over and over again, wishing at first that you could have done, I mean, always wishing you could have done something else, but at a certain point, knowing there was nothing you could do, um, that, 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 that it was um, absolutely unavoidable from, from your part, that's clear. But a lot of people would have just allowed it to completely derail their, their lives. And I'm, I'm wondering if you've thought about how you were able to not let it completely destroy you for the rest of your life. Like, because so many people have tragedies and, and it's not their fault. Like these tragedies just loom larger and larger and become sort of the central thing and, and almost like saps them of their will to think that they can live a different life. So what did you do, man, to like 
move forward? Yeah, that's a good question, and thank you. I don't even I don't even know. I remember when it happened. I just was standing. I remember standing in my room, looking in the mirror. It was such a cheesy movie scene, being like, "Is this going to ruin me? Is this going to ruin me?" Over and over. But you know, one of the things that was really um, And you meant internally, wait, did you mean internally? I want to be clear. You meant, is this going to mark me internally forever? Not, is this going to ruin me externally? Or did you mean both? I think I meant internally. Like, am I just going to go down? You know, let this pull me down to the bottom of the ocean. Um, And and what happened? What did you decide? I don't know. Uh, But, yeah, the thing I'm probably most proud of in my life is is that, so when my first book came out, um, it was reviewed well. And... uh, a friend of mine from high school said that she was at a wedding and someone came up to her and said, did you hear about Darren Strauss? And she assumed, Oh, he's homeless. He's a drug addict. And then they were like, no, it's actually his pictures in the, in the art section of the New York times. They wrote this book. Ah. And so the fact that what people thought was going to happen to me was, was total ruin. And I was able to make something of myself. I, that's what I think makes me proudest in the world of my, uh, you know, that was something that I don't, and I don't know how I did that. I just got lucky, I guess. Well, no, you must've made a decision, man. Right. Like when you were looking at yourself and saying that, do you remember consciously saying like, I am going to put this somewhere and I'm going to move forward? I, I remember dealing with it in an unhealthy way where I buried it and just didn't tell anyone. So I went off to college like you, I went to Tufts and I, made all these new friends and they didn't know i mean i just i it was Wait, it was they didn't yeah. you didn't tell them at all i don't remember that from the book you didn't tell anybody but that's the weird thing about growing up when we grew up there was no there was no search engine so i just yeah i don't think i don't think it, i may have told my roommate eventually like because my freshman roommate weirdly became my my best friend in college which never happens and i think i probably told him by the end of my time there but it was definitely not something that I told people. So ever. you just move forward. You just like, we're like, fuck it. I'm, I can't. And by then, did you know for sure it wasn't your fault? I always knew intellectually because it was just yes. so clear. I mean, I was in the far left lane. It was, you know, you, yeah, you know no, it was, it's very clear. It I know. Be- I know. It was Bar yeah. Beach Road. I mean, you'll, you can picture it. I'm yeah. saying like it was Bar Beach Road. There's two lanes each way. So she cut across two lanes of traffic and, you know, five cars of eyewitnesses and the police. Everyone was saying it's not your fault. So I knew that it wasn't my fault intellectually, but you know, I, I didn't really know. I mean, I would spend late nights in the library at at college, like looking up response times to see like, is there anything I could Uh, have done? You know, like, so, but I think intellectually I knew, but it's still, you know, it still fucked me up. I had like stomach issues and as a young guy and my hair went gray pretty early, you know, it was just, it was tough. Yeah. And then somehow, and, and did you, did you try writing about it at first, like at college? Did you write about it in creative writing classes? Did you no. did it show up in your work? No, it's funny. Um, so I went to grad school at a time when everyone was writing autobiographical fiction, and except for me. And everyone was like, uh, why are you writing? Because my first book's about conjoined twins from Siam. Right. So yeah, they're course. like, why are you going as far as possible from your life? And I, I, it was so, the idea of writing about it was so foreign to me that I, I said to people, well, there's nothing in my life to write about. And I wasn't being facetious. I just, it was so impossible to imagine writing about it that I, I felt that that was true. I just didn't, didn't think I could do it. So one thing that people listen to the podcast know is I'm a, truly obsessed with gatekeepers. Uh, and I think that's part of what my reaction to writing programs uh, is 
that even there are gatekeepers sort of at every level of this stuff. And, and, and in the new book, um, the story of Lucy having this idea, you know, her career's at a certain place. She has this idea and the res- to put a show on television about her and Desi and the resistance she receives um, is so great. And she decides to prove them wrong and all that stuff. Um, uh, how do you deal with? So one, I, I imagine that had to be when you learn that detail, because so much, you know, that's such a, a crucial part of the book. And I'm wondering how much of the point of view, Lucy's point of view reflects your point of view about the people who decide what can and can't get published, you know, and how uh, how you in your own life have gotten past them or how you perceive them. Yeah, I think that that... And by the way, your grandfather deals with it too because of the expectations from, you know, a different kind of gatekeeper, the gatekeepers to whether you can live the life you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so my grandfather, the reason he was a terrible businessman is because he wanted to be a poet. And he had this immigrant father who said, well, I built from nothing this giant real estate business, and so you're taking it over. And so he didn't get to live the life he wanted to live. And so in a way, that's why I became a writer probably. Um, but yeah, she that's what really appealed to me about her when I started doing the research. She, When she was 16, she ran away from home, came to New York to try to make it, and immediately was told, you don't have it, go home. And then she ran away 10 times throughout high school to New York, uh, to New York trying to make it. The last time her mom met her at the bus stop and said, you forgot your coat. So like she was, she was going for it. And, and that was when she was 16 and she didn't really make it till she was 40. And I, I just feel like that was so, so amazing. And that's probably why she was so successful. It wasn't talent. she, she didn't, I mean, she, as she put it herself, I can't sing, I can't dance, I'm not the prettiest and I'm not the best actress. And this, of course, is a time of great misogyny when, you know, if you're not the prettiest, it's, it's a, even more of a roadblock than it is now. So what, yes. what is it about her that made her the most beloved figure in America for many years? And I think it was that, um, that determination, which I really admired and, st- and stuck with. And yeah, the gatekeepers, it's an interesting thing. Um, I always had sort of a chip on my shoulder. I don't know why. I always felt like they're standing against me. Not like It's not like I had some ridiculously difficult path, but I always felt like, you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I, you know, all these people, uh, I, I wasn't the no, guy. No, that, nobody but a Tufts kid has that level of chip about Harvard, but I know what you're talking about, man. I really do. And so I, I don't know. I just, and I wasn't the one in grad school anyone thought was going to make it, you know? So I, 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 gatekeepers is something that's really interesting. The fact that here's this woman with this incredible idea and CBS said no. And she, they said, well, you're sort of a has-been and or never was really. And your husband is Cuban. And so we'll maybe give you the show if you have a white husband. And she said, no, I'm doing it. I'm doing it with a Cuban husband. And she bankrolled this tour around the Midwest to show CBS, look, people will accept us. Just give us a shot. And I just thought that was incredible too. And the reason, of course, the, the funny thing, it, it seems so admirable. She was like fighting for this interracial marriage and it wasn't quite, it wasn't all principle. She, she knew that if she did the show without him, he would cheat on her from day one. So she wanted to be with him all the time so he couldn't cheat on her. Have you heard from Lucy Arnaz? No, I've heard that she's reading it though. I heard from a friend of Lucille's 
who was angry about one of the articles I wrote, but but likes the book. He's he's not done with it. So that was kind of cool. Yes, um, so, but you heard that she's reading it. That's great. I I saw her in playing our song when I was a kid, and sort of thought she was the coolest that she did that. Um, yeah. So, I, I want to talk about your creative ambitions because, uh, although I, in one of the articles I read, you said like no, you know something about like this kind of book does it, or someone said doesn't get written that that often. But I do think there actually are a few of these meta narratives that have worked in the last couple of years, and in particular, I'm thinking of H H H H. Oh yeah, great book. And I love that book. You know, it's my, my like really like my favorite one of my favorite books the last few years. And then I even think of City of Thieves, where he's writing about this mythical grandmother character, and and it sort of bookends similarly. Um, and I I. I wonder how you think about where these kind of meta, they're a different kind of meta narrative than like the David Foster Wallace sort of deconstruction of the novel where you're examining what it means to write a novel. This doesn't feel like that. This feels like uh, it's more about um, the, the, the meta aspect of uh, fiction, nonfiction, and of folding all the elements of the world into the book. And can you talk a little bit about how you, you, you came to think about that? And do you see some kinship with HHHH in a way? Uh, great question. I didn't think of it until you mentioned it, but so I didn't want to do it for the reasons that you're saying. I don't think I just thought, what's the most fun way to tell the story? Because I thought the problem with nonfiction is, you know, you have to stick to what you can verify. And so I thought if anyone's going to write about Lucille Ball, it's not going to be that interesting. Like the biographies, no offense to anyone who's listening who (laughs) wrote a biography, but they're not that compelling because right. they don't get into her head, right? And and even her autobiography is very withholding. So you can get, yes, on, on such and such date, 1951, the show aired and it debuted to a huge rating, the equivalent of 85 million people today. So that can can be conveyed, but not what it's like to, to live in that, that texture, the texture of her life you can't get across. And with nonfiction, with fiction, you know, when you write fiction, you're always asking, does this make sense? Is this character compelling? Well, so if you choose Lucille Ball, you know it makes sense and you know it's compelling. So I thought I can take what's fun about nonfiction and what's fun about fiction and try to do something a little new. But I, but then you mentioned all these books. There is something in the air, and I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's maybe it's just reality so interesting now that uh, there are a bunch of novels that are taking real life and using them. And I was thinking not of HHHH, but Michael Chabon has a novel that is sort of based on his grandfather, which I didn't, you know, uh, I was almost yeah. done with my book when that came out. So I didn't know he was doing that, but, but so he did something kind of similar. And then there's um, uh, the new uh, Martin Amos book that's coming out in a couple of weeks, which I guess is a novel about him and Christopher Hitchens. So there's something in the air and, you know, there's that. Oh, I can't wait to read that. I did not know that. I can't wait. to. Yeah, read that. that's going to be good. And then there's that Karlov Nosgard or Nosgard's book, which yeah. which is yes. a true story also. And yeah, and I loved HHHH. It's so funny though. I just thought when I read that, I didn't think about my work. And I think I had already started <laughs> this book. I just thought, man, I'd love to try to adapt that to a, for a movie or, you know, or tell that story as a movie. Yeah. It'd be amazing to tell as a movie, but, but it'd be hard because you have to tell the reporter part of it. And so like, you know, uh, I think you'd have to tell the writer, you know, you'd have to tell it from the guy writing it because that's sort of what makes it so special, I think. And um, yeah, I think someone is, I, check, I checked on the rights of that too. And I think it's not, <laughs> someone has the rights. Yeah. I mean, I, 
Uh, but and also, I don't know if you've read City of Thieves by David Benioff, but that's also um, got elements of what we're talking about. I haven't. Yeah. I've heard good things about it. Um, it's it's a wonderful book, truly uh, uh, wonderful, and and has uh, has uh, elements of that as well. You know, you brought up talent before, and 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 whether it matters, and I'm wondering. I'm wondering now how you've been teaching long enough that maybe some of the people you've taught have have tried to do this for life and. Where do, do you really believe that you do you believe you can recognize the ones that are talented or can you recognize the ones that just have the will to make it happen? Or is it a shooting match like you just don't know? The, the best thing that happened to me as a teacher was that a student who I didn't think was that good got published really early and became a great writer. So I when I first started teaching, I was teaching at Columbia and uh, I taught Karen Russell. And I just thought, nice young woman. Not so great. And then immediately after the class, she just got really good. And I, and I realized, you know what? It's not for me to say. I'm just seeing them at one point on their graph. And so if I say, oh, yeah, they're never going to make it, how do I know? You know, so much of it is hard work. And so I really like her work now. But when she was my student, I didn't like it that much. And I think, okay, well, so I have to help these people get better. But, you know, people get better in different speeds, right? So I remember reading about, or no, someone told me they were in a class with Oscar Higuelos, who wrote Mambo King's Play Songs of Love, which yes. won the Pulitzer Prize. And they said he was not a good writer until the end of that semester. He came in and finally decided to write about his heritage. And like he found the material that clicked with him and he wrote this great book. And so I think that, I do think that there probably is something that's irreducible called talent in, in people who are good writers. But I don't know if it's, if it's the majority of what, what makes them good or, or even how important it is. I don't know. I really believe that I've seen enough people now get published and become good when they weren't at that spot to start with. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that there's just someone who you're just good and then, and then that's, I, that's I, what it, I think you, I think, um, I can't say talent plays no part. Talent plays a big part, but you don't know if you're talented until, like some people know, there are some people who are like supernovas, but generally, until you put in a lot of work, you don't know if you're talented and no one else does. Though I think there's a spark, I would say, I, I, what I've seen personally is like there's a spark in someone who can, there's a, there, there's a recognizable spark somewhere in what somebody does, mm -hmm. that if you're looking closely enough, you might be able to see the spark. Um, which may be just passion. There's like an alive, there is a certain kind of aliveness on the page, but maybe you're saying that Karen didn't have it. So, but you know what I mean? There's an aliveness on the page yeah. and the people where you think, oh, there's something, it, it doesn't feel like work. There's something in there that, that sort of bounces around or, or whatever. Maybe that's just what I recognize. Yeah, no, I think that, that, um, that makes sense. But I don't know, I, 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 was, I was moved by that book, that Gladwell book, um, blank where it says if you do anything for 10,000 hours you'll be good at it and and maybe the thing is you wouldn't do anything for 10,000 hours unless you had some talent at it yeah yeah no I think that that's right look I think Colson Whitehead from the moment he started writing was great you know I know his college roommate who was like well that dude is so smart you know yeah um but then there are definitely other people where they got better and better I mean I even look at you know um a guy I love who writes genre fiction mostly Lawrence Block 
Yeah. Like he was always a great writer, but the difference in the first three Matt Scudder books when he was just sort of like finding it to the ones that happen in the middle or later in the run, uh, the later ones are just like as good as anything could be. And he wasn't nearly that good when he was young. And he just wrote, I think he just wrote his, he actually just wrote something that I think every writer needs to read. It's the darkest book I've read in 10 years. Um, It is so unrelentingly dark. What's it called? Uh, in, it's called Dead Girl Blues. It's very short, and it's just what he's asking you to contemplate in the first 50 pages are... So, it actually doesn't stay unrelentingly dark, but the first 50 pages are so disturbing in a way that I can't... It's hard to give voice to, but I think it's the best thing he's ever written by the time you get to the end of it, and he's 82 years old, yeah. and, and that's an example where that guy just kept trying to get better at writing. And you're only and seeing he, him after he got published. Like You don't know what his, his college drafts were like. I mean, I, I'm, right. I'm friends with Coulson and Whitehead, and you know, he'll say he started, I guess he started at um, the Village Voice, and he'll say he, his first things for the Village Voice weren't that good. I don't know. I haven't gone back. Uh, I don't much. know. I, my, I don't know. I mean, but you know, I mean, Sammy just read his new book and was like, "That's the that guy's the best writer." He's great. On Earth. He's he's fucking yeah. great. I mean, there's a reason he's won two Pulitzers, you know. But I think the question is like, did he start out? I mean, you know, I don't know. Like Michael Jordan, I just watched that documentary. He he didn't yeah. make his varsity team, and he's Michael Jordan. You know, I I think there. I, no, I'm it's a, a great be- thing to keep I'm in mind. That and I, work is is more important than than anything else. Oh, I am too. No, that I, I listen. That, that that's why I say I do think talent matters, but you don't know until you put in so much work. So I think passion and belief and determination are more important because talent. You know, unless you are, you know, so talented that it's immediately obvious, uh, it, it won't be recognized until you put in that much. Um, you know, until you put in that much work but isn't right? that scary for the listener like what if you put in the ten thousand hours which is eight years of work four hours a day whatever it is and then you realize oh i don't have it what you know it's i guess that's well but if you can do something else you would do something yeah, else right yeah. like anyone who does this any aspect of this it's because they have i mean i look at it like um i write songs that's what i do for my other like that's what i that's what I work on as like, uh, well, I guess it was a hobby. Now I take it much more seriously. And like, I didn't know if I could, I, like, I had no idea if I could get good at it. I just knew like something about it. The questions it raised for me made me want to keep going and like seeing if I could get good enough at it to do it professionally. And then going back again, you know, like continuing to sort of attack it, even with the failures, even with listening back a year later to something mm-hmm. and going, oh, I see why that wasn't good enough. But like something keeps you sort of like coming back to it and back to it and back to it to, to, because there's the satisfaction, isn't there, in, 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 in trying really rigorously at something? It's so funny you say that because my hobby very similarly is I play guitar and I thought, you know, maybe right. I'd try to play guitar for a living. You know, I mean, I, right before this podcast, I was watching this YouTube video about learning this George Benson lick, you know, like I'm really into the guitar. And yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something about yeah. about being creative that you would, yeah, I, I need to be creative. I got, much, I got much, much better at guitar over this. That's the one thing over pandemic that improved for me. I, I, I was terrible and now I can, you know, pretty much play whatever I want on the acoustic. I can't play lead guitar at all, but like I got to where I, I can look at a song and play it now, you know, mm-hmm. if I just see the chords of anything. So 
I got to that level, which was a big deal. I'm coming over with my guitar. I want to play. That sounds fun. What do you have? Do you have a telly? What do you have? I have a, I have a Martin acoustic and a Strat. I have an old Martin acoustic, uh, like from 71. That's my favorite thing in the world. And I have an American professional telly. I got, I, I, I got a song covered by somebody. I can't talk about who yet, but I got a cut. Oh, wow. And, I, and when I did, so when I got a cut, I bought myself a telly because I was like, all right, I can, I can sort of justify buying the Telecaster now. Well, as you said, yeah, I, I, I graduated in 92. I just turned 50. So for my 50th birthday, I bought myself a 1961 Gibson amplifier. So I had to like drive up to Boston. Oh, that's yeah, so great. It was really fun, yeah. Oh, it must sound amazing. Yeah, we could have a, a Zoom jam, but I really only play, I have the Telecaster, but I'm not, I can't really play the Telecaster for anybody. It's just, That's really just for me. All right, as, as we end here, I just want to say a couple names for you to react to them. Uh, your, Colson was one of them. So I, I just want to know wh- how you feel about these novelists. Uh, wh- where do you think Wallace fits now? Or do you think he fits? Does he matter still? I love him. I mean, me too. it's the thing about, I mean, my friend uh, David Lipsky wrote a great book about him, I think. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's a tough thing because I teach and grad students don't talk about him. I'm just so surprised because he was so important to people our age. Um, and I think he is probably the best writer from our generation or the best writer we had in the 20, or 21st century for a long time. So I, I don't know. I love him. Let I guess let yeah. time sort it out, but I think he's great. And what do you think of my favorite writer Murakami? Do you like him? Do you get it? I like him. I like his short fiction um, even better. Um, it took me a while to get Wind Up Bird Chronicle. I was sort of like, what is what is going on here? Um, yeah, I didn't. Have you read get... Kafka? Have you read Kafka on the Shore? I have not read that one. Is that the one to read? Yeah, read Kafka on the Shore. Knowing your work a little bit, read that book and then. Tell me what you think. Um, and I agree, it, the short fiction's great. Yeah, but because that's the that's a novel Kafka on the show, right? Yeah, that came out like. Yeah, it's a novel. Yeah, Long, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a novel, but it's it, it's. I I love the short fiction too, and I think Kafka might it might get you there. It's a pretty amazing book. He's okay. my favorite. Yeah, he's great. I mean, I I love the short stuff, so I'll I'll go back and and uh, and give that a try. And 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 Darren, as a last thing, who uh, who do you want people to read other than you and everyone should read the queen of Tuesday. It's a great book and it's not like any book you've, uh, you've read. It's not like any other book out right now. You should read H H H H afterwards. I think they go very well together. Although one is about, um, uh, a sort of, uh, huge tragedy on the greatest scale. And the other is just about the a tragedy, um, on a more personal level. But, uh, what, um, who, what else should people read? What do you love right now in the world? Well, you know, one thing, I love a writer that people have sort of forgot. And I think that it's it's really interesting how people's stock rises and falls. So I love this writer, V.S. Pritchett. And I got to uh, be, write an intro for him for the Modern Library. That was a huge thrill for me. But he was knighted. He was a huge star in America and England. And, then, and he was born in 1900. And he wrote until he died in 1997 in this long, productive life. And then people forgot about him. And his, I think V.S. Pritchett Collected Stories is the best short fiction in the English language. Um, you know, maybe after I like, am trying after to Dubliners. See. 
So I good. am trying to see if I have read any of his books. And I'm sure, like, I'm looking at where his stories have been collected. And obviously, like, I have a bunch of those books. So I'm sure I've read, I'm sure I've read him and, and I know his name, but I do not think I've read one of his fucking books, dude. What's the one I'm picking up? Collected stories. Like, what's- collected stories. Because he writes short fiction. His, his novels are not so great. But his collected stories, and I'll, I'm, I will email you the ones to read. Incredible. Yeah, really do it. Email me the ones to read because, uh, uh, like, I'll start tonight. Like, I'll start reading tonight. So, yes, Definitely. please send me. All right, Darren, this was great, man. Yeah. Everybody, Darren Strauss, go read Queen of Tuesday. Follow Darren on Twitter uh, and uh, wherever else you follow people. Brian, thank you, man. Hey, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Uh, you can write me the moment, vk at gmail.com. Go read Darren's books, and we will see you next time. Bye.